You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So a quick summary of where we are. It's hard to give a quick summary in the book of Esther. Where we are, this is the climax of the book. Um, to be honest with you, I thought Matt kind of gave me a a, a raw deal with this one because it's kind of difficult. And then yesterday in our preaching group, we looked at Esther 8 and Esther 9. And then after we got done, I thanked him for giving me Esther 7 because uh, it, it can be difficult. But where we are right now in Esther is Esther is the queen. She's become the queen. No one knows that she's a Jew except Mordecai, the Jew. And that's how he's referred to in the book. And she is the queen to King Ahasuerus, who is pretty much a pretty well agreed, terrible person. And so she's become queen. You have this guy, Haman, who is the second most powerful guy in the kingdom and, and, and is, is working everything for himself, trying to do everything. And he's got this thorn in his craw named Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, who won't bow to him. So he, in turn, finds a way to kill all the Jews. It's not enough to just get rid of Mordecai. He's going to kill them all. And then, later on, once again, Mordecai disrespects Haman, and he decides, all right, that's it. We're going to kill them in, in 12 months, but we're going to take care of you here in the next few days. So he builds a gallows next to his house. Mordecai has gone to Esther and talked to Esther and said, you are the queen. Let God use you to save us. And at first she was a little hesitant, but then she realized that's where she needed to be. That's why she was there. God had placed her there. And she said, let's fast for three days. Then I'll go to the king. And if I die, I die. She says in there, if I perish, I perish. But she goes to him, and he accepts her at court and says, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. And she says, let's have a feast. Seems a little weird, but okay, let's have a feast. So they have a first feast, and she says, let's invite Haman. And Haman comes to the feast. And then when he asks her again, what would you want up to half my kingdom? She says, let's have another feast, and then I'll tell you. So that's where we are right now. We're at the second feast. And Haman is pretty discouraged because he built this gallows to kill Mordecai. Goes in to ask the king, hey, can we execute Mordecai, the Jew? He's a terrible person. And instead what happens, the king says, hey, guess what? You're going to help us celebrate and you're going to lead Mordecai around and celebrate Mordecai for saving my life. So now his ego's taken a huge embarrassment because this guy he hates, he's got to lead. So he's pretty upset going into this second feast. And we'll start... Esther 7, verse 1. And if I say book 1, just know we're going to be in Esther 7 the whole time. Sometimes I intersperse book for verse, for chapter, for... I'm terrible about it. So we're going to be in Esther 7, verses 1 through 10. So if I say book 5, we're actually in verse 5. I'm just going to warn you right now, because it's probably going to happen. So we'll start with verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Esther. And on the second day... As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. When you look at this, you see Haman is in this feast with the king. Now, it's important to remember, the king never ate with anybody, except maybe the queen occasionally. But otherwise, he pretty much ate by himself. He was a terrible person, and he was pretty paranoid somebody was going to try to kill him. So he always tried to stay by himself. So here's Haman, the only other person besides occasionally the queen that's getting to feast with the king. So it's a pretty big deal. And not only has he done it once, but this is the second time he's getting to do it. So he's pretty excited. 
And the king asked Esther one more time, what is it that you'd want up to half my kingdom? And he's expecting her to say, eh, a palace, more servants, more money, uh, have a feast day for me, have a festival for me. But he's not expecting what comes next. Let's take up reading in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For the affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Right here, Esther has just simply said, ask the request. She hasn't accused anybody of anything. She hasn't said anything about anything. All she's done is say, if you're happy with me, please save me and my people. My wish is to save me. The request is to save my people. And the king is probably a little shocked about it. Haman, on the other hand, is probably terrified because she used his words that her people had been slated to be killed, to be annihilated, to be destroyed. Those are the same words he used in his edict to kill the Jews. So now at this point, the king's kind of like, huh? And Haman is like, uh-oh. Because not only has he realized he's given the queen a death sentence, but he now realizes she's also Jewish, same as Mordecai. So reading on. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? And who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman, terrified before the king and queen. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from a wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to, to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And the word as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the, galax that, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. So here now the king asks her, who is it? And she says, Haman. And Haman is just coming unglued. He knows his days are numbered. He knows he's got to do something. And the king gets up and he goes to the palace garden and it's always funny to me, I told this to Matt before, when you read this, he's going to the palace garden to get the guards, because the guards are in the garden. I don't know, it's a wordplay, it just seemed funny to me. But he comes back, and what does he find? He finds Haman bowing down. You know, when they feasted, they sat on these big, giant couches around this table, and they just lounged about. And here's Haman, falling on the queen's couch, begging for his life. The irony is... Just a few days before, he was upset because Mordecai the Jew would not bow before him, and here he is bowing to this Jewish queen. He's had his ego trashed. He's now begging and pleading for his life, and the king comes back and immediately has him killed on the same gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. When we read this book, and when we read any Old Testament narrative for that matter, a lot of times you can come up with 
one or two messages in that narrative. Matt made the reference to us a couple of weeks ago that he could probably give this narrative to three of us, have three of us preach on three consecutive Sundays and have three different messages. It's not like an epistle where an epistle's written like an essay in college, you know, you, the epistle comes out and says, this is what I'm gonna tell you. Now I'm telling you what I'm gonna tell you. Look, this is what I told you. So it's pretty easy to do an epistle, but in a narrative a lot of times it can be difficult because there can be good messages, two or three. And in this book, however, they all tie together. You can see where you can have, you reap what you sow with Haman. Haman has spent a life, you know, of self-centeredness. And, and here he is now reaping what he sowed in his life. But when you look at the contrast between Esther and Haman, you see where Esther is building this life on a foundation, on a God-centered foundation. And she's God-centered in what she's doing. And where Haman has done nothing but be self-centered, built everything on himself, built everything for himself. All he wants to do is get better. And he's the second most powerful person in the kingdom and living that self-serving life. And at the time period in history we're talking about, his eyes probably aren't just making things better for himself, but are also on usurping Ahasuerus to taking the crown for himself. But in the end, he reaps what he sows. And he's, and he's killed. Now, there's some writings that say that Haman was a pagan, so you have to expect that. He wasn't Jewish. He didn't believe in God. But that self-centeredness that Haman shows here can get each one of us in our daily lives. Maybe we're not, you know, we, we all try to live on a God-centered foundation with a God-centered point of view, working on that. But there are times when we fall, when we don't when our motives aren't God-centered. How we act, what we do, shows our motives in our lives. Our acts show whether our motives are pure and God-centered or whether they are self-centered. We make, at times, difficult choices in our lives. And when we, when we, when we act on a God-centered way, you know, I think back to my grandfathers, and, 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 and this isn't bragging because I'll never, I, I, I'll always feel like I'll never be able to reach where they were. But those two gentlemen could walk into a room, and I was blessed to have them in my life until my 30s. And uh, they, could, they would walk in a room, and by the way they carried themselves and the way they acted, people knew that's a God-centered person right there. That's a, that's a true Christian. And, and it's hard to, to do it's hard to be that person because so many times we're looking for a return on our investment. We're looking to get something out of what we're doing. And the truth of the matter is, it's not like that late night preacher on TV that says, if you'll open your wallet right here, God will open his wallet later on and, and, and you'll receive tenfold what you gave. That's a return on investment. And, and, and that doesn't always happen when you lead a God-centered life. You may get that answer. You may not get that answer for a few years. You may not see what happens for a few years. You may never see the good that happens from what you give. We're going to give to Lottie Moon offering here in the next few weeks. We will probably never see the riches that come from that offering because it's going to go overseas. It's going to help folks overseas. But so many times we want that return on investment. We want to see where it is. And that's when we get into that place where we're living that self-centered life. And I say we have difficult choices, and we do. Kind of. 
Many years ago when I first got out of the Navy, we were stationed on the, on the left coast, way out west, and the uh, Baptist churches in the Pacific Northwest aren't really like the Baptist churches we grew up with here. They're a little, well, a whole lot more out there. So we had gone to the Episcopal Church to try to find a place, and, and, and that was a place that really, it, it was a liturgical church, which means you had a, you know, a normal, you got to, you know, do step one, step two, step three, step four. But the messages that were given seemed to work well. So when we moved home, we were going to the Episcopal Church over in Cameron for a few years, and in the early 2000s, there was a big division in the Episcopal Church. And I'm not picking on Episcopals at all. But the Diocese of New Hampshire had made a practicing homosexual priest. If you can get past that little sentence right there, a practicing homosexual priest, they had made him a bishop, a bishop in the church. And it caused a big split in the Episcopal Church of the United States. Right off the bat, the Diocese of Fort Worth left the Episcopal Church, and the Diocese of Texas said, we're going to follow suit. But when summertime came and they had the convention, all of the clergy voted to stay with the Episcopal Church, and half of the lay people decided to stay with the church when they voted on it. And the reasons? Because the clergy would lose their benefits and their pension, and many churches would lose their sanctuary because it was owned by the Episcopal Church, not by the local church. And so the Bishop of Texas came and said, we're going to go to different areas. And the meeting in this area was two blocks over at the Episcopal Church here in Rockdale. People from Taylor, Thrall, Thorndale, all over the area, Cameron, Giddings, everywhere came to listen. And the bishop reiterated those points. I don't know how it happened. I have the gift of gab, so I was nominated to be the one to ask the question. And so I stood up and I asked the question, if you preach to us all the time, if we act justly and we are God-centered and, and we act as we should, then God would take care of us. And the bishop looked at me and said, it's not that simple. Folks, to choose to live on a God-centered path or a self-centered path is simple. The difference is, is many times when we live on that God-centered path and we make those decisions to stay on that path, life can get difficult. And so a lot of people choose that self-centered side because it can be easy. It can, it can make your life a lot easier sometimes. Think about it. If you're in a, with a group of friends and one of your friends starts ripping people apart for being a Christian or, or, or ripping the Christian faith apart, how easy sometimes would it be to just sit there and not say much and think, think uh, you feel so bad, but you're not going to say anything because it's easier because you don't have to deflect those comments that would come your way. But the simple choice is to say something. You may have somebody else in that group that wanted to say something. You may be that person that changes that person who's wrecking the Christian faith. You may be the person that changes their life makes them think about it. These choices that we have, and we have these choices every single day, whether it's to help that person that's homeless, whether it's to, I mean, you just go through your day and think about it. There are times when you see things. You see, you know, the other day, I, I was at Walmart the other day, and I pulled up, I, I came out of there, and there was an older lady, and she was really struggling with dog food. I think my mother does this too. That's why she calls me when she gets home and asks me to come get the dog food out of her car. But she was having trouble with that big bag of dog food. And four people walked by her before I could get to her. She was parked right next to me. And four people walked right by her watching her struggle. That dog food bag was as big as she was. I mean, it was huge. I don't know what kind of dog she had, but she probably needs to think smaller. 
I got there and I said, hold on, let me help you. And I helped her and I put it in and she thanked me and she wanted to give me a dollar. I haven't been offered a dollar since I worked for Brookshire Brothers back in the day, but she wanted to give me a dollar. I said, you don't need to give me a dollar. All those other four people should have stopped and helped her. Those choices, it would have been easy to, to just walk by. There's a lot of times in our lives where it's difficult to be that person. You, you know somebody who's having a tough time in their life and you really want to pray for them, really want to pray with them. And let me tell you something, that first time, it, it, there's anxiety there because now you may be labeled that Christian dude over there and people may talk different around you or, or treat you different. But pray. Once you do it one time with somebody, you're going to want to do it again. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to make them feel better. And it's going to be two people praying to God over the same thing. And that person may not think about that. They may be thinking, I've got to work out of this problem. I've got to work out of this. And you pray with them and they realize there's help. There's help there through prayer. See, we have these opportunities all the time. And it's a simple choice. But... It's the difficult part comes sometimes by making that simple choice. So the question today, and I told Johnny I was going to make this kind of short, so it's a little shorter than I thought. But So the question today is, live your life as a God-centered Christian. It's easy to not be that God-centered Christian. There's a lot of people that come up here, meet with Matt, they say a prayer, they accept God into their life. Two, four, five weeks later, they're up here, they get baptized, and they're all excited, and they walk out of this church, and it's back to square one. They're just living their life. They're here for an hour or two every week, and the rest of the week, it's theirs. That's not really living a God-centered life. We don't, you know, when you go back out there and you're making those same decisions you made before, you're not living that God-centered life. And, and we're all guilty of it at times. I know I am. There are times when I do things, and a day or two later, maybe an hour or two later, I'm like, what was I thinking? You know, there's times when, as a husband, your wife may come up to you and want you to do something, and it's the same thing she's asked you to do 100 days in a row, and you just think, like, and you say something, you know. You can't do that occasionally. The difference is, if you're God-centered, and you're on a God-centered foundation. When you leave the house, or you, you, those words leave your mouth, you're going to want to grab them back. Or you're going to think, man, I shouldn't have done that. And when you're in that self-centered phase, you're going to rationalize that and say, yeah, I told her. By the way, if your husband here today, I would not recommend doing something like that. I got, I got huffed at yesterday at Walmart. It was an interesting story. I can tell you about it later. But um, it wasn't that interesting for me, by the way. But... When we build our lives on a God-centered life versus that self-centered life, there's one thing about it. One of those lives, one of those foundations leads to life. The other one leads to death. The self-centered lifestyle, the self-centered foundation that Haman found himself on led to death. And that we're going to find out in the weeks to come that that foundation that Esther built herself on leads to life for her and for her people. You can see the return on investment there, but you may not see it in things that you do in this life. And that's okay. That's okay. Today, if, uh, if, you, uh, if, if, if you don't feel like you're there, you don't feel like you're on that God-centered life, here in a minute we're going to have a uh, hymn of invitation. I think it's one of my favorite songs, by the way, too, Doc. I really like it when you do this one. But if you need to, talk to Matt. Matt's going to come up here in a minute.
and he's going to be here, and, and, and he'd love to pray with you or, or talk to you. If you're looking for a church home, I tell you what, I, I, I've been to just about every church in Milan County, just about. And this is, this is home. This is a church home. This is a church family that, that loves each other, cares for each other, looks out for each other. And if you're just looking to bring God into your life today, and today you feel like you need to surrender, then in a minute Matt's going to be down here and we're going to play a great song and come down and, and pray with Matt. A lot of times there's anxiety, a lot of anxiety in coming down. When, 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 when my mother wanted to make this her church home, she wouldn't come down here without me, and I told her, I'm not doing it till you do it. You're going to have to do it, then one week later, I'll do it. And so she finally came down here. And there's a lot of anxiety with that. But remember, there's two kinds of people sitting in this auditorium today. There's those people that have already been there, and they're cheering you on as you walk down this aisle. And then there's the people that want to make those same decisions too. And no one here will ever look at you and be like, what are they doing? Everybody here is rooting you on. So if you're looking for that home, you're looking for God, you want to rededicate yourself, here in a minute, they'll be down here to do that. Let's say a prayer, and then we'll, we'll have that hymn of invitation.